Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. We see the beast, now another beast, coming alongside of that one we saw in verses 1 through 10, who will assist the empire of Rome in seeking to dominate and destroy and deceive the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that one whose name and title is 666. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. When I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down from heaven and on the earth in the sight of men and he deceives those who dwell upon the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell upon the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark upon their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, as we come to you, we find many mysterious things. We ask that as we open it and endeavor to understand it, that you would all give us all wisdom and understanding. This we pray in your holy and awesome name. Amen. Every once in a while, I feel a little bit clever and whimsical with my sermon titles. (laughs) You may have no idea what that sermon title means. There is some meaning to it, and we'll get to that in a moment, especially as it relates to the identity of the one whose name or number is 666. We find this morning another beast that comes forth now, not from the sea, from the Gentiles, but from the land, from the earth. And this beast supplements and aids the overthrow of that beast and his aggravations against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. His technique, what he endeavors to do, how he will manipulate men, all of these things we must know and not be deceived so that we might live in the world that God has made in the kingdom that he is establishing, and be faithful even unto the very end. Two points then that I want to make. The first, the beast of the land, we see this in verses 1 through 15, and then the mark of the beast in verses 16 through 18. Let's look at the first point, the beast of the land. Now, as it relates to all of these symbolic characters in the book of Revelation... We need to understand that John is not 
literally describing things that he sees. But these are symbolic expressions as to the identity and action of these particular characters and players in times past and with regards to certain events in the future. Most of it, though, especially these chapters, is related to something that has happened in the past. Now, of course, as it relates to things that have happened in the past, there are themes that do continue even to this day. But the beast that we find here, beginning in verse 11, comes up out of the earth, not out of the sea. Now, last week, we looked at the beast that comes forth, looks like the dragon, talks like the dragon, is the color of the dragon, and if it looks, walks, and talks like a duck, it's what? Well, whatever that duck identifies, right? That's where we live now. Maybe it's a goose. <laughs> Stretching its neck out further and further. No, it's a duck. This beast is the Roman Empire, but to the extent that it serves its master Satan, that nation began to persecute and speak with the forked tongue of its master. It came forth and began to, in the age of Julius Caesar to Galba in particular, force, by providing at least in the beginning, suggestions that you need to worship the Caesars. Of course, the persecution of the church reached its fever pitch under Nero Caesar, Neron Kaiser, that one who with, well, for three and a half years, that period of time spoken of in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10 brought great persecutions against the church. Now, just because these things have happened in the past does not mean that the perse persecution of the church does not continue that inasmuch as these are descriptions of literal events, they are also typological of the way in which the beast continues to wage war against the church today. And also those antichrists that are religious leaders that seek to deter faithfulness as unto the Lord. Now this beast looks like a lamb with two horns, but it speaks like a dragon. It is of the land, and it exercises authority like the first beast. This is a Jewish beast. It is of the Jewish people. And they come speaking on behalf of the Jews for the benefit of the Roman Empire. Now, I'm going to give away the plot a little bit here so that you're not lost for the next five minutes. When Jesus was crucified, who led the charge by utilizing the Roman penal system? The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. And they all cried out, what? Crucify the Lord of glory. It was not Rome calling for the head of Jesus at that time. That was earlier. That was Herod. In fact, Satan devised another scheme. And that scheme was to raise out of the Jewish people a hateful sentiment to the head of the Christian church, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so there were those alive at the time of Christ and the apostles and the early church who were of the Jewish people who wielded power and religious influence, but at the service of of the body politic of Rome. 
What the Jews had become was a state church. Whether they liked it or not, whether they sought independence, their rejection of Christ caused them to flee to whom for authority and power? To Rome, to Pilate. They had made an unholy alliance with that first beast. And not only did they make an alliance, but verse 13, he, this second beast, the Jewish beast, the one whom I would call false prophets and the religious priests of the day performed great signs so that even he that is the first beast, these false prophets and wicked priests made fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. They performed miracles. They performed wondrous signs of unholy power. Now we find this expressed, if you're looking for an example, Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 13. Now, In Acts chapter 8, there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Until what? He was converted. But despite the fact that he wielded great power, it was not power that was used in the service of proving the messianic identity of Jesus Christ or the authority of the apostles, but what? To lead men and women and children astray into false religion. You know, even in modern days, we are consumed with this discussion of miracles and that somehow Strong works of power are proof of divine good. But in the scriptures, it required much more discernment than just, oh, he does something powerful, he must be good. These works of power. And then Acts chapter 13. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus who was the proconsul, or was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, a Roman. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, that is Bar-Jesus, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O fool of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you will not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord. Can you imagine? Can you imagine American pastors talking like this? Rebuking men in the face and in the presence of, of the political leaders of the day? Is this not what John the Baptist was beheaded for? For confronting the immorality of the Herod. And so these clues as to the identity of this second beast are found in Revelation chapter 16, 19, and 20. These false prophets who draw people away, not merely by threat, but what? How do you attract more bees? Vinegar or honey? Honey, I'm told. (laughs) 
to the allurements of the kinds of things that are pagan wicked parodies of true divine speech and act. Satan has power, and he knows how to wield that power. And he knows what you, and especially in particular, and I'm not saying this is you, I mean Christians, but especially theologically weak Christians, morally weak Christians, those who spend more time engaging in the stuff of this world than nurturing their souls upon the truth, goodness, and beauty of God's word. And with unholy power and persuasion, like the magicians of Egypt, whose staffs turn to snakes. I mean, can you imagine if that happened in America? Well, they must be part of God's plan too. Look at all the power they can... Because why? Because power is enchanting. But it is a pagan parody meant to lead the saints astray. And so this beast spoke on behalf. In fact, look at verse 15. This beast, the false prophets and priests of Israel, granted power to the first beast by giving it breath. By giving breath to the image of the beast. What we're talking about is the ecclesiastical support of a pagan system. Paul again speaks in Acts 20 of the danger of these kinds of teachers. For I know this, this is Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 29, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend to you God and to the word of his grace. The word is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Also I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. How did these false teachers become false teachers? Because they loved the gifts of the first beast and the name of that beast more than the gifts in the name of Christ himself. Religious leaders are drawn away when there is a promise for fame, for safety, for honor and glory by the world, by Satan himself, and not a dependence and trust and hope and faithfulness to God. What Jesus would have become if he had fallen prey to the temptations of the devil are what these men became. What Adam became at the tree when he believed the lies of the devil more than the promises of God, so too are these teachers. And they don't always come in and say things that are shocking. In fact, their great effect is by the subtle movement of what we call now the Overton window. Are you all familiar with this phrase? Most of you are not. Children, you have no idea what you're call talking. I'm not talking about windows that are in your house that you can see through. I'm talking about this sort of understanding of what is right and wrong and acceptable in relationship to some kind of system of truth. And what we find in the world today, and even in the church in America, because I would be a fool not to take the word and apply it to our lives today. 
Because it's easy to say, well, that was then and this is now. No, no, no. Then is now. Nothing has changed. It may not be Rome, but it may be America. It may be any political institution where power is wielded for this reason, to get you to let go of your grasp upon this book as the only authority for life and for godliness. I'll give you an example. In all of this debate right now, around the time of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is essentially just giving back to the states the right that belongs to them. Actually, states don't have the right to determine whether or not you can kill a child in the womb. We don't even have that right. But at least it does not belong with the federal government. We can say that much. And what began to happen as it became apparent that this opinion would be released and this ruling that was a godless, violent ruling many years ago has been overturned is that many people in the Christian community said pro-life means womb to tomb. Have y'all heard this phrase? That is code for this. In order for you to go to an abortion clinic and say to a woman, don't get an abortion, you had better be ready to care for that child through social institutions. And when you hear social institutions, the way that phrase means now is, then you need to pay for them not to kill that child. And the alternative then that is put forth by many Christians is socialism is the biblical cure for murder. And the question for us is, is that the case? I put the question to you. Because there are many Christians, and you need only look at the dialogue online to discover that what has happened is that many within the church have removed from the seat of the home the care for the human body and given it to another institution to which it does not belong. Let me put it this way. It's one thing to have an overbearing mother or parents that are constantly worried about your safety. To have that then authority taken away from your parents and given it to people you've never met that care nothing for you. Or to give the responsibility and rightful duty to a pastor and elders the care for your soul to nameless pastors and elders as members of a church and you've never even met your pastor. Or to someone else altogether. What has happened within the church, oftentimes as it relates to these false teachers and priests, is not so much outright lies, but what they do is they come into the church and they put a brick in the back door so the beast can slip in through the back. I'm speaking metaphorically here. I'm not saying someone's coming in the door down there. But you lock the doors tight. How do you do that? through the faithful preaching of God's word and by helping the saints of the church establish a bulwark so that when trials come, as we sang in Psalm 34, the world looks at us and goes, how can you not be afraid? How are you confident and courageous? And so what we find is that there are many enemies to Christ's church. The world is full of lies. How then do we know the truth? Well, we don't look to power, do we? We look to what? 
the faithful proclamation of the word of God that holds Christ up as the king of heaven and earth. God has not given to Rome the ruling of earth. And he has certainly not given it to the second beast to inform us how we are to relate to Rome. The way in which we relate to those in power on earth is by receiving from the lamb who was slain, who does not speak on behalf of the false empires of earth, and we live as God has told us to live. Now, this is what has happened. In our particular context, we have come to a point now where it seems that the church and many are waking up to the reality that we have given up and ceded far too much ground to Christian deconstructionists, to egalitarians, to critical theorists, to theological liberals. And we say, in essence, if you say anything publicly, you're going to have a lot of pastors and a lot of churches that go, shh, don't wake the beast. The beast has never gone to sleep. The beast cannot be tamed. The beast can only be what? Put to death. He must be destroyed. Now, we do not fight as the world fights. We do not fight with lies. We do not fight with wicked power. We see that the power of the church is not in the sword, but it is in the faithful word of God preached and the lives of Christians lived out in faithfulness. But look at the history of the world, of Rome, of China, of Eritrea, where we've heard about their compromise, Canada and America, the way in which Christians are often coddled and neutered is by folks shaming us with these words. Our kingdom is not of this world. But it is coming. And it has been coming. And though we do not fight with the weapons of the world, what is the end game? Well, let's ask ourselves from the inverse something that Satan knows that many Christians have forgotten. And that is this. What is Satan's end game? If Satan had his will, what would it be? All the earth is Mordor. A scorched, greenless, always winter and never spring. It is death and destruction and not a single person would be alive. It would be Satan upon the throne and no one there to serve him. And this is what the beasts of earth want. And they don't even know it. At times they don't even know who their master is. But for us to say that our fight is purely physical or purely spiritual is naive and foolish. And the lies that are often most effective to us are this. Just live and let live. I can't think of anything less exemplary of the Great Commission than that. What is the Great Commission command us to do? To confront every living soul with this offer, serve God or die. Now, I don't mean die at the sword if you don't convert now. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is the call of the kingdom, to make peace with God unless you perish in the way, to trust in Christ alone. 
But these false priests, these false prophets sneak into the church and what they do is that by begging, borrowing, or stealing through force or through manipulation, by the carrot or by the stick, they are endeavoring essentially to call Christians to drop their guard so that Satan can just walk through the gates. And that should never be us. In fact, what should we do? We should fight to the last man, to the last breath. Because there are really only two options. You will either serve Christ or you will serve the devil. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. And that leads me to my second point, the mark of the beast, the 666. Now, we're getting to the title. Who is the beast? Well, it is clear that John knew who it was. In fact, he is telling them, let him who has understanding calculate. And so like many boys in the 50s, as they would open those boxes of cereal, and there would be in one box the decoder ring, and in subsequent boxes the messages that they were called to decode. And they would go into their room, and they would take that little ring, and they would spin the dial, or a number would be associated with a letter, and they would unfold the message, like in the movie The Christmas Story, where it said, what, eat more cream of wheat or something stupid like that. What, that's it? The secret of life is eat more of the product I've already been buying? John knew who this was. But John is in captivity. He is exiled and he is surrounded by guards. And as he is writing to the New Testament church, he is saying things that are incendiary that would be taken out of print if they were published in the New York Times. So what must he do? He must write in code. He must write in symbols. So that they who have the Old Testament decoder ring, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and all of this apocalyptic, it's like God was preparing the New Testament church for such a strange and cryptic letter. It was not strange or cryptic for this reason. The means of calculation is through an ancient process called gematria. And gematria is a system, a coding system, wherein letters... In Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, because they did not use Arabic numbers, letters and numbers would be associated. For instance, alpha, which is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, is associated with, as the first letter, one. And as you move down, the first nine letters are the first nine numbers. And then when you get to the tenth letter, you get the number ten. And then following from there, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, and then to the hundreds, Go find a gematria legend online. That's what tells you all of the, the key. It's a key. So if I were to write on a tree, 1,052 loves 105, it means Joby loves Carlo. <laughs> That's what it means. <laughs> Not to embarrass my wife, but maybe one day I'll write that and people will go, what does this mean? 1,052 loves, it's because J600 O, 50, B, 2, Y, four, uh, uh, 400. 1,052 is the total. Now, who is John writing about? Well, this was a distinctly Hebrew audience at the time. And he was writing in Hebrew also to further entrench the code. At least he was writing to a Hebrew audience. And here, as we look at Gematria, what we find 
is that the letters without the vowel markings, which is what is added or taken away with Hebrew, N-R-W-N-Q-S-R, which is short for Neron Kaiser, is 50 plus 200 plus 6 plus 200. 600. I'm sorry. I, I didn't get all that. 50 plus 200 plus 6 plus 50 plus 100 plus 60 plus 200. Can you do that quickly? 666. It's the name for Nero Caesar. Now, maybe some of you, when you were younger, your parents said, any tattoo is the mark of the beast, right? In the fundamental days in America's youth. That's not what it means here. Nero was the name. It was the mark of the beast. Because Nero, or the emperor, was equal to the nation. Even in constitutional republics, when we talk about power, the first person you think of is whom? Not your local representatives. The guy at the top. But there is no top, which is always ironic. Caesar. Nero Caesar. And so if the name is the number of the man, John is writing to the church and he's saying, shh, I'm talking about Nero. And guess what? He's going down. He's going down. But he is the one of whom we must be wary. He is the one who calls and is manipulating and moving the pieces in order to do what? To bring an end to the church. To silence, to mask, to cover, to eliminate. Why? Because all men who wield power wickedly do so on behalf of their father, the devil. I think we could probably say that. Now, when you say that in this climate, you will sound crazy. The reason why you sound crazy is because we stopped saying it for a very long time. So what is the mark of the beast? Well, the mark of the beast is an authentication that you are playing the beast's game. It is the pinch of incense and the card that you get to travel from country to country to show that you have received the mark of the beast. It is a manipulation tactic whereby you are allowed to enter into the economy and keep your job. And the reason why Satan and the beast and even the religious leaders of the day say, just play the beast's game is to do what? Because they fear the beast more than they fear the lamb. And so, verse 16, he causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads. Now, what does that sound like to you? The hand and the head. The way in which Israel in the Old Testament, these are the people that know their Old Testament, were called to mark themselves. Now, when we go back to the book of Deuteronomy, we look at what's often called the phylactery, the thing that they would actually wear on their forehead and in their hands, was God saying, I want you to print and make a little box and put some scripture in there and tie it to your forehead like a headlamp? Is that what he was actually saying? No. That your mind, that is the organ and operation of study and contemplation, 
was to be informed by the word and your right hand, which is the arm of strength and labor. So whether you are worshiping or at rest or laboring for the kingdom, you are about the king, Yahweh. Your life is marked by an allegiance to Christ. But what does Satan want? He wants those very same places. He wants your head. He wants your heart. He wants your strength. He wants to occupy you, or at the very least, silence and cause you to stop. To make you impotent in the work of the kingdom. To silence you. To cause you to fear the beast and not the lamb. And when he hits you in your purse strings through the operation of wicked political leaders, because that is what the beast is. John is making this political. I am not, other than I'm preaching the word of God. This is how politics or polities or systems of power often operate when they are godless. They endeavor to draw you away by hook or crook, by carrot or stick, by honey or vinegar, in order to get you to compromise and to fear the beast more than the lamb. And so the mark is not whether you have a tattoo that says Nero, Nero, or Jesus, and Jesus. It's what? Your life, your worship. And it's not just political power. We live in an age now where there are so many options about what can be done on the day of Christ's resurrection other than worshiping. And every one of those events is a choice about whose name you wear. Does it say Kukli on it? You know what I'm saying? Actually, it's on the back, right? On a football jersey. What is it? Yes, I'm saying sports played on Sunday are an abomination. They are sanctuaries of secularism. And they should be avoided at all cost. So, this is how... And now, there are going to be a lot of Christians that are in those places. And those are the people who have been told that what you do on Sunday has nothing to do with the keeping of the law of God. And the reason why I make that point is this. When, it's, when you've compromised on the very clear teaching of God's word that we find in the Ten Commandments, then it is easier to compromise on matters that are even more subtle and more insidious. Like, love is love. In fact, although I never liked VeggieTales, I always hated VeggieTales. VeggieTales was very popular when I was growing up, and I think even popular up until about 10 years ago. What I don't like about VeggieTales is they make of great historical biblical acts cartoons, and I find that reprehensible. But that's my own opinion. Phil Vischer, who was the creator of VeggieTales, was in quite a talk, like a sort of, an online battle with a, a number of different evangelical pastors. And it was over the issue of abortion, in which Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales, the trusted storyteller of Bible stories, began to say, I'm not convinced that there isn't a time in the life of a fetus where we can't say no. Compromising on an issue that for many Christians you say, yeah, there's no compromising here. But who is listening to him? All the people that bought the DVDs. Well, if Phil... And you know how that argument is always made? 
out of love and compassion. It is always one of love and compassion. What about the mom? What about these people who are born this way? And I will give some allowance to folks who exercise deviant lives that there is some element that they've always struggled with. But for churches to normalize that kind of behavior is wrong. Or to say, you can come, or we'll call you by whatever you want to be called by. These matters of compromise lead to what, ultimately? And are the expression of what? Fearing the beast more than the lamb. Now, again, these are current day issues, but they have always been current day issues. It's who do you receive as Lord? Whose authority is your authority? Now, it's tough. And it's tough because oftentimes in environments where you haven't had to fight as much because the church has actually made great progress, you start to do what? Everything feels like I'm back at the camp and the fight is over. And I would say adults, as we look at our own children, or if you just don't have children, you have there are younger people in the congregation. For the younger in this congregation, there will be greater challenges, but what that means is that there will be greater opportunities. Because what the world is endeavoring to do right now, and when I say the world, I mean those who wield political power for the sake of wicked ends, they are the ones who want to say, you have the mark and you don't. And what we must do is say, I don't have the mark. Right? I don't have that passport that gets me from one country to another. And you may lose your jobs. You may get kicked out of school. You may not be able to shop at grocery stores unless you have the card with your stamp. You are approved by this particular body. But as Christ would say, is it worth it to inherit the world but to forsake your soul? You see, Revelation isn't some pie in the sky, let's leave this book where we never know what it really means and just kind of argue about the symbols. John is teaching Christians how to live in the world. And it is costly at times because there is a battle. And so he ends, here is wisdom. And what is that wisdom? It is not just the wisdom to discern and decode 666. The wisdom is what? How to live in the world and not obey and worship the Caesar in place of Christ. Now, that question is massive. How then do we live? How shall we then live? But it begins with this. You must fear the lamb more than you fear the beast. And you must not be enchanted by power and the working of great wealth and riches and have your soul be enchanted by those things at the expense of faithfulness. You need to ask yourself this question. How much is my soul worth? Who owns it? And what am I willing to do to be faithful to my Lord? Let's pray.